Hi, I'm Ryan Levy. Welcome to Cyberism's Malicious Life. Fifteen years ago, a number of high-profile Tibetan monks received the same innocent-seeming, nondescript email. Yes, monks sometimes have email. Those who clicked the attached doc or PDF files downloaded a Trojan horse, which often led to a second malware, GhostRat. GhostRat underpinned the GhostNet operation we discussed on this podcast a couple of years back, in which China spied on economic, political, and media targets in over a hundred countries. It worked by taking advantage of vulnerabilities in Microsoft Office and Adobe Acrobat, often flying under the radar, but sometimes causing a flash on screen or outright crashing an application. The result, though, was powerful, enabling China to download further malware, steal documents, or simply spy on their targets via their keyboards, microphones, and webcams. This, generally, is how most of us think of hacking. An infection vector, usually simple social engineering, followed by different stages of malware, which allow an attacker to establish persistence, move laterally, and cause further actions in a host computer or network. In recent years, though, hacking has started to not look like this in some meaningful ways. Cyber attackers, particularly the most advanced nation-state-level APTs, have made a characteristic shift in their tactics. Their new favorite strategy is changing the ballgame not just for them, but for their victims and the people trying to defend those victims. To demonstrate, we're going to focus on one recent case study. The origin story for us goes back to August of 2021, where... There was a disclosure on an attack on, in a port in Houston. John Lambert is a security fellow and corporate vice president at Microsoft, who founded the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Team. Two years ago, his threat research operation was called in to analyze the forensic data left over from a cyber attack against a port. I think what stood out as interesting in the beginning of this is when a cyber attack happens to a port. Cyber attackers target large corporations all the time, usually for money. Small and medium companies too, since they're easier to pick on. They sometimes target governments too, either for money or for political reasons. But a port? Why exactly would hackers target a port? The analysis started to tie together some initial pieces of intel. A few months later, in November of 2021, the FBI released a report about um, an actor that was using a zero-day in a VPN appliance known as FatPipe. FatPipe MP VPN, a VPN security solution. The vulnerability, assigned as CVE 2021-27860, was given a quote-unquote critical 9.8 out of 10 rating by CERT, the kind of rating saved for only the most serious bugs out there. The actor they described was using that zero-day to drop web shells 
which are a form of a backdoor onto networks. There was no known connection between the port attack and the FBI report. For all anybody knew, they were entirely unrelated phenomena. But as the months went on, like a serial killer's murder spree, more attacks kept popping up in different places, but with a few important shared features. For example, the attackers encrypted their communications using a specific encryption key. That was something like MAGA 2024. A joking reference to Trump's presidential re-election bid. And it was just important that it was unique. And that allowed us to start fingerprinting. You know, where did we see this pop up? And understand where in the world this might be and, and get a sense of, of timeline. One year after the port, while Americans were distracted by a giant Chinese spy balloon hovering over the U.S. mainland, there was an overlapping cyber attack, this time against a telecommunications company in the small U.S. island territory of Guam. Shortly thereafter, in the fall, another against another telco in Guam. For the record, there are only three telecommunications providers in Guam, so cyber attacks against two of them stands out. Guam is of geopolitical significance, and a telco is certainly a very important type of collection target. And because telcos are involved in many aspects of ICT infrastructure, they are commonly in the crosshairs, and and a compromise of a telco is, is pretty broad-reaching. So... Right there, that's sort of the kind of thing that makes an analyst go, well, this is important. And a few months later, as we progress into winter of 2023, we start to see increasing preponderance of U.S. victims in, in a variety of sectors. The same group's fingerprint was discovered in attacks against transportation, communications, construction, maritime, and education sector organizations and IT companies, manufacturing plants, government agencies, power plants, and water treatment facilities. Basically, every industry that's critical to the everyday functioning of a nation. Which posed a dilemma. There are many kinds of organizations that are targeted because just of the data that they have, you know, uh, or the access to data that they have. And so, you know, diplomatic organizations, military organizations, uh, the defense industrial base, all those kinds of organizations are pretty traditional geopolitical based targeting of broad relevance. But there are some organizations that really have no intelligence value. They don't really have any data. And that's what we started to see in the mix of victims here when we saw water companies in different states in the United States, water companies don't have really any real intelligence that's worth collecting. It led to one uncomfortable but inescapable conclusion. Disruption is the potential impact. Government services shutting down, power or internet going out, water going untreated. And so it's even more important um, or it raises the importance of being able to find and evict these actors from those networks. Microsoft gave the adversary a name, Vault Typhoon. As Vault Typhoon claimed more and more breaches, the researchers could get a better sense of how exactly they did what they did. What made them so successful? 
How had they slipped past authorities and analysts for so long while attacking high-value targets around the world? Well, like just about any APT, they had a set of tactics and tools they use in each of their attacks, which we can analyze. So a typical attack pattern would look like they would eventually get cited on a particular um, organization that they wanted to go after. They would understand its network, external network presence, what IP addresses map to that organization, what is exposed on the internet, what kind of software is running on those IPs. This isn't quite as ordinary as it sounds. Obviously, hackers will aim to eventually compromise desktops and servers in a cyber attack. Those are the most important machines in an IT network, where you can download malware, steal data, and so on. But Vault Typhoon does something more elegant. Instead of using social engineering to try to convince their targets to download malware to their computers, they scan the internet for devices in their target networks which are exposed to the internet. It's not as difficult as it sounds. Plenty of tools allow you to do this quickly and easily, like the Shodan search engine. With Shodan, you can find devices around the world which are exposed to the open web, either by accident or often by design. For example, network routers, developed by companies like Cisco, Netgear or Asus, that connect corporate networks to the wider internet. Part of their approach was finding network devices on the edge that had vulnerabilities in them, often vulnerabilities that were patched, but not patched by the victim network. By scanning for internet-exposed devices running vulnerable software, Vault Typhoon completely bypasses social engineering. This not only means less work for them, it also completely eliminates the risk of a smart employee flagging a suspicious phishing email or text. Maybe you're wondering, if hackers can take advantage of them, why would any organization leave their devices exposed on the open web? The thing is, they're often that way by design. A network router, wireless access point, firewall, VPN, or remote server management tool, these are made to connect to the wider world. It's a bit of a catch-22. Organizations need these devices to operate, but using them carries serious risks. Not only are those devices exposed to the internet by design, they often operate with high privilege, with elevated credentials. VPN appliances often have credentials of many users um, that are using them, and they serve as a bridge into an internal network that allow them to quickly escalate privileges. Besides their openness and privileges, network or edge devices enable Vault Typhoon to design a base for their operations that's extra resistant to analysis. They often want to be able to have infrastructure that is temporary, ephemeral, and hard to attribute back to them. Um, so they certainly wouldn't take out a credit card of their own and, and, and rent a virtual machine somewhere. They would try to... Um, get infrastructure that is either infrastructure that belongs to somebody else that they can compromise, which was indeed the case here, and then just accumulate that over time 
um, and then be able to stitch together a routing path through those devices on networks around the world. Because there's so many of them, and many of them that are vulnerable, they're able to accumulate a pretty big collection of infrastructure that they can use in a very agile way. These weren't the only challenges facing Microsoft's and the government's analysts. They're pretty dark devices from being able to understand what's happening on them and so forth. There are sophisticated visibility and monitoring systems that give us a window into what's happening on our computers, automatically tracking and picking up on abnormal behavior. But network devices don't really have users. We don't often conceive of them as locations where bad guys can do malicious things. So we don't have the same kind of software for looking inside of these devices, monitoring anything abnormal going on inside, and doing anything about it if something like that were to happen. So that helps them preserve their stealth. And from there, they would route their attack over a covert network um, and eventually seek to get credentials on that device. So for example, if they have an exploit for a firewall or VPN appliance that that victim is using and that victim hasn't patched it, um, then they'll have a shell onto that device. And then from there, they'll dump credentials. And once they get elevated credentials, they'll begin the process of pivoting to the internal network of the victim. In this way, these vulnerable overlooked devices on the outskirts of a company's network act as a launch point. With regular command line functions, Vault Typhoon can gather credentials from devices, package and exfiltrate them, and then use them to establish persistence and spread further into and around the network, compromising more machines and gaining more credentials at each step of the way, with the ultimate goal being to reach the very highest level of access possible. But notice how throughout this whole process, besides a simple shell, they're not actually deploying any cyber attack tools. They're not using custom malware. They are using the built-in functionality on computers, like in Windows, that they're using WMI or other commands that are just native system utilities. There are so many ways in which Vault Typhoon did the same kinds of things you'd expect malware to do, but without the malware. Like masking their actions, not through any sort of fancy encryption, but by using command line functions which are otherwise totally legitimate, alongside all the other perfectly innocent traffic happening on the network. There's a term for this. Many of the techniques they're using as they're going along are this type of technique called living off the land. Living off the land involves using the native functionality, tools and processes of a system to carry out malicious activity. It first came into public consciousness in 2018, but only recently has it become perhaps the single biggest trend among malicious actors because it just works so well. Think about it. Analysts and security software regularly thwart cyber attacks by identifying foreign software and unrecognized traffic. But here, there isn't any software raising a red flag. And just imagine, in monitoring a large organization with tons of traffic, how terribly difficult it would be to somehow identify which entirely legitimate functions are maybe being used illegitimately 
by hackers. And if they do need any software in the course of their attacks, Vault Typhoon can use commercial off-the-shelf or open-source tools, like Fast Reverse Proxy. This is a piece of software that is used for benign purposes in networks, because proxies are just networking-related uh, software. And it let them take a server that's inside the victim network and then expose it to the internet where they could directly access it. More often than not, there's an even easier solution than using open source or commercial software. Hackers already have more than enough at their disposal by using what comes packaged in any standard Windows computer. For example, they could try sneaking a suspicious remote access Trojan like GhostRat or Trojan.Hydra past cybersecurity defenses and onto a host computer, then try to use it without raising any alarms. Or alternatively, there's PSExec, Windows built-in feature for allowing users to execute processes on remote systems. That they can use for the purposes of dumping credentials, getting persistence on machines and lateral movement, and so on. And then that, once they've done this process, they, they have access to this network. Lambert and his team observed Vault Typhoon leveraging Windows features all over the place, like during the first Guam telco attack. We realized they're looking at logon events inside of a victim network. And a reason an actor would do that um, in Windows, we call those event ID 4624, and network people will be familiar with that. That tells you, it's like a record of when somebody logs onto a system. And what actors, the reason they're interested in those is they're interested in what admin accounts are in a network. Logon events would certainly tell you uh, when an admin's logging onto a system. And importantly, where that admin's workstation is, where are they logging on from? Because if the actor can get to that machine, then they can actually get the credentials of that administrative user. Today, cyber threat actors across the world are using living off the land to do what they previously did with malware. Other Chinese APTs like BlackTac and Flex Typhoon do the same thing Vault Typhoon does, but so do the Iranian groups Remix Kitten and Charming Kitten. Besides Vault Typhoon's targets, other US government and defense targets have fallen victim to attacks using living-off-the-land tactics. And it's not exclusive to the highest-level nation-state groups. Ransomware actors love living-off-the-land more than anyone. Many organizations use remote monitoring and management tools, RMMs, so that administrators can connect to their systems over the web. Groups like Lockbit have figured out that they can more easily spread their ransomware simply by using these existing RMMs. It's almost certain that living off the land will only grow in the years to come, as bad actors devise more clever ways to use our devices to do their work for them. The best strategy for organizations to avoid becoming a victim of ransomware is to prevent the attack from being successful in the first place. CyberReason remains undefeated in the fight against ransomware because it moved beyond alerting to deliver an operation-centric approach that detects and prevents ransomware attacks at the earliest stages of initial ingress and lateral movement. 
The CyberReason Predictive Response Capability disrupts ransomware attacks prior to data exfiltration and long before the ransomware payload can be delivered. Visit CyberReason.com to learn more about predictive ransomware protection and how your organization can realize both increased efficiency and efficacy through an operation-centric approach to security operations. Despite its many intrusions into the organizations responsible for maintaining daily American life, Vault Typhoon has yet to enact any tangible, visible damage. But this, according to the Biden administration, is no reason to wait and see. In June, the New York Times reported that Vault Typhoon had already inspired a series of meetings in the Situation Room between the President, the National Security Council, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Pentagon. Reporters spoke with more than a dozen officials about the classified details. Quote, They say the investigations so far show the Chinese effort appears more widespread in the United States and at American facilities abroad than they had initially realized. But officials acknowledge that they do not know the full extent of the code's presence in the networks around the world, partly because it is so well hidden. End quote. One congressperson called it a ticking time bomb, not least because we still don't fully know what China is planning to do with such information and such access. Quote, There is a debate inside the administration over whether the goal of the operation is primarily aimed at disrupting the military or at civilian life more broadly in the event of a conflict. But officials say that the initial searches for the code have focused first on areas with a high concentration of American military bases. End quote. That military facilities would be the primary targets would help contextualize those early attacks against telecommunication providers in Guam. Guam is an essential front from which the U.S. exerts its influence over Southeast Asian affairs, including the South China Sea, where China has steadily increased its military presence in recent years and in the protection of Taiwan. If Chinese state hackers breached the island's telecom providers, well, you can do the math there. If someone was an organization that would be in the crosshairs here, uh, there's a number of things they could do. In recent months, John and his team have been trying to spread word about how organizations can defend themselves against Vault Typhoon and its living off the land tactics before the ticking time bomb goes off. The first, most obvious step is to try to block them out before they can get to the devices where living off the land becomes possible. While many organizations understand their computers need to be patched, and we're all familiar with that on our phones and our desktops, uh, anything with a blinking light in a network, um, all of these devices, those also run software and need updates. Organizations running updated, patched, well-defended networking devices sever Vault Typhoon's primary attack method at its head, forcing the group into alternative strategies. But how can you stop living off the land if it's already happening? That's the real trick, 
detecting it. If you already have the attacker's fingerprint, for example, commands they like to use or hashes for the custom binaries, you can look for evidence of them in your network. Without that, the best you can do is behavioral analysis, analyzing data gathered by monitoring and detection tools to try to find anomalies in network traffic. That's why Lambert emphasizes the simple things any company can do to make a hacker's job more difficult. When it comes to credentials, multi-factor is a huge hammer that's very effective for customers. If they just choose simple passwords that could be guessed, you know, that's the kind of thing these actors love. Uh, the only people that really love passwords are, are hackers. And so uh, multi-factor is a very strong recommendation here. And then there's also just modern defenses, um, EDR systems, uh, seams, event log collection, those kind of things that make the process of discovering and investigating attacks not only easier for the victim organization, but also for any security responder that would be there to help them. There is still a remarkable amount of ground to be made up, though, even in organizations that can least afford to fall victim to a Chinese cyber attack. Not every organization in, in critical infrastructure is a sophisticated IT organization. Some of these water companies are quite small and, for example, might even be family-owned. In critical water treatment plants, hospitals, even the government, where you'd imagine computer networks are highly protected and follow strict regulatory guidelines, there are a surprising number of opportunities for adversaries. Back in the spring, the threat hunting company Census scanned for exposed devices running at more than 50 government organizations and sub-organizations. In all, they discovered 13,000 distinct hosts, with hundreds running exposed software with potential vulnerabilities or misconfigurations. Which brings us to May 24th of this year, when after two years of investigating, Microsoft finally published its report, and CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and authorities from Australia, Canada and the UK published a joint security advisory warning about the new threat actor Vault Typhoon. Just three weeks after the world learned of the sophisticated Chinese group leveraging network appliances and living off the land techniques to compromise high-value American targets, CISA released the Binding Operational Directive 23-02, ordering that government agencies eliminate all internet-exposed management interfaces running on edge devices within 14 days. If the notoriously slow-acting government can make such meaningful progress in just two weeks, so can the rest of us. And we need to, if foreign adversaries are able to use our own devices against us before we are able to protect them, there's no saying exactly what will happen. You might just long for that time way back when China created immensely powerful cyber weaponry. Ah, the good old days. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Following our previous two episodes about NSO, the maker of Pegasus, 
we asked you over on Twitter if you would be willing to work for a company like NSO. The results were somewhat mixed. 48% of you said, no way, we're not going to work for a company such as NSO. 30%, however, voted sure, and 21% were on the fence. In the comments, Daryl Knudsen from Alberta wrote, quote, I really had to think about this question. I came to a conclusion that a better question might be, would a person work for an entity that uses the product in an unethical way? End quote. Regular John wrote that he's not sure that NSO is quote-unquote evil, and points to an interesting scene from Kevin Smith's 1994 film Clerks. Quote, There's a scene where they are talking about the rebels' destruction of the still-under-construction second Death Star, and the toll on independent contractors its destruction would have caused. One is saying it's morally reprehensible, whereas the other guy says those who worked on that job were morally reprehensible for taking the job. Who is more morally responsible? End quote. Naturally, I had that question on my mind when I was writing these episodes, and in a sense, I've already made that choice some 20 years ago when I worked as an electronics engineer for an Israeli defense contractor. As I mentioned in the episodes, weapon platforms like the ones I was working on were probably being sold to various countries, although as an engineer, I was too far removed from sales and marketing to know anything about it. If I had to make the same choice today, being older and hopefully a bit wiser, I think I probably wouldn't take that job if I had a better option. But really, I don't think the people who work for NSO are evil or bad or anything. I'm sure some of them are even quite nice people. It's just life. Shoutouts to Ajit Chandran, a cloud security engineer who wrote to me on LinkedIn to say how much he loved the podcast and the stories we tell, like being a kid in a candy store, as he put it. Thank you very much, Ajit. Also, shout out to Eric van Workens from Stockholm, Sweden, and Travis Green from Denver, Colorado, who both wrote to say how much they love the show. Thank you very, very much. A reminder about my online talk that's coming up on December 19, 2023, Are Large Language Models Dangerous? With all that's been happening at OpenAI in the past few weeks, and the rumors about a mysterious powerful AI model called QSTAR that was the possible cause of all the mayhem, it's a question that's probably more relevant than ever. The online talk will be free, and it will take place on Tuesday, December 19, on 2 p.m. East Coast, 11 a.m. West Coast, 6 o'clock at evening, Greenwich Mean Time. To register, visit t.ly slash AGI talk, one word, t.ly slash AGI talk. The link is also pinned to my Twitter profile at, at @ranlevi. R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. This episode was written by Nate Nilsson, edited by me, with sound design by Sherry Gueta. Our website is malicious.life. You can follow us on Twitter at, at maliciouslife or follow me at, at ranlevy. Thanks to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh my God. CK Music. Music. Music.